Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Listening to Jimbo Mathis and Andrew Bird's new album, These 13, it's like taking a trip down south a century ago. Forgot to get old, forgot to get old, forgot to get old, getting on time, forgot to get old, getting on time, forgot to get old. It's new territory for Andrew Bird, a classically trained multi-instrumentalist from the Chicago suburbs who's been a successful indie folk singer-songwriter and also recently acted on the fourth season of Fargo. But for Jimbo, as a Mississippi resident, some of the music can hit too close to home. Surrounded by the ghosts and old battlefields of the Civil War, some songs he finds almost too hard to sing. Jimbo and Andrew first met musically, playing for the Squirrelnut Zippers in the mid-90s, a key part of the swing revival of the time. In 2018, Andrew and Jimbo got back together, exchanging voice memos and new song ideas. Over the course of two years, they recorded their new album, The Old Fashioned Way, singing into a single microphone. In this episode, Bruce Headlam talks to Jimbo and Andrew about the varying ways they came to master their instruments, and how hanging out with Jimbo down south freed Andrew from the constraints of his formal training. They also talk about how they managed to sneak a line about cell phones onto an album that pulls its inspiration from 150 years ago. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Headlam with Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis. You've got this terrific new album, These 13. So let's just talk about how this album came about. What was the genesis of it? 
I've always wanted to make this record for the last uh, 20-some years. You know, I, Jimbo and I worked a lot together in the late 90s, and I always just wanted to get him alone with me <laughs> to do a stripped-down duo record because he's he just has uh, something in his playing and his singing and his musicality that uh, brings something out in me, for one, and it, it's also... I just feel like people need to hear it. It's kind of a lost touch that he has with phrasing and that's that's kind of been ironed out of music uh, since the advent of radio and the music industry. But I just haven't really, you know, had the right moment to, to bring him out here and to do this this project. So it took me quite a while to get around to it. But once we did, we, um, you know, what surprised me is... Uh, how much writing we did together, what a collaboration it was. I thought it was just going to be us doing a bunch of Mississippi Sheiks covers and Charlie Patton covers, and it turned into a big uh, writing collaboration, which was kind of a revelation. Yeah, I mean, Bird, Bird uh, he kind of sketched out the idea to me, but he was like, you know, do you have a couple of songs maybe you could send me? So, I mean, I ended up sending him probably 20 songs or something. I mean, uh, just because I like to just throw ideas out, you know. And so it st- kind of started sh- taking more shape that way, like he like he described, and became a much more a personal and original record, I think, than either one of us envisioned at the time, how much we enjoyed it and how easily we were able to cobble these songs together. And, of course, I knew playing would be no problem and recording, and we've always had that. Now, when you guys were playing in the 90s, you were doing swing, Andrew, how did you know this was something you wanted to do with Jimbo? Were you backstage one night and he started playing a song and you thought, that's the sound I want? Yeah, when we met, you know, I met, I was aware of the Squalnut Zippers uh, in their first record and I met him in North Carolina when I was at a festival there. We were both into this early 20th century American music. And for the Zippers, there was just this convergence of a strange national trend, uh, popular trend with that, that that they were on the same path of. But there was way more going on there than just pop culture thing. Because I really think of the Zippers as not so much a swing band, as like one of the many eccentric Southern bands, like say the B-52s or, you know, I think of them more in like a broader sense than just that era of swing dance lessons and martinis and whatever. I mean, Jimbo would invite me down down to North Carolina and down to New Orleans and was introducing me to all these eccentric folks and playing music all the time and kind of hard living and wild life. And But when, when he brought me down to New Orleans to do songs for Rosetta, which is his uh, tribute record to uh, Charlie Patton and, and to his daughter Rosetta, then... That's that's when I got really turned on to Charlie Patton, which is Jimbo's sort of personal touchstone, I guess, uh, creatively. And it, it was it was less of a swing thing and more of this sort of strange, exotic Southern music from the early 20th century. And that's where really the idea for this record started, was that I just wanted to sh- sort of showcase, show people what Jimbo was doing, that maybe in other projects of his you don't, quite here is clearly and like Andrew said um, I came from a real rural area with a lot of family music 
So the whole folk music thing, it's just odd that we met over the era when he was both interested in the early jazz, vaudeville, cabaret, and so was I, incredibly interesting. We haven't, neither one of us has done that particular style since then. But in our meetings and our hangouts back in the 90s when he would come to North Carolina, you know, we would do like I did growing up, which was sit out under the tree and just share songs, you know, from the folk canon. Now, Jimbo, your your parents started you out on mandolin, is that right? I started out on mandolin, you know, when and, and the way I grew up with music is very un, untrained. I play by ear like Andrew, but coming from a different side, it was just social music. There was no microphones or stages or anything or audience. It would just be the family and the friends, you know, that's the way I grew up, so... There'd be a lot of drinking, you know. <laughs> Not me when I was six, but uh, one, one of my uncles got a little inebriated and left his mandolin over at the house, you know. <laughs> and uh, I guess maybe for a few months he forgot where he had left it. And the, by the time he came back to pick it up, I had learned the rudiments and was figuring out I wanted to play with the with the older guys and gals. And so... At that point, they had to buy me a mandolin. But your parents weren't musicians, right? It was just a tradition in your family. Yeah, they weren't professional musicians. No, not at all. But they were quite good. And uh, really just the social reality of music and, and just doing it for your own entertainment, your own enjoyment. It's like a pre-TV lifestyle. <laughs> Something to pass the time. Of course, you do play funerals and family reunions, important milestones. You know, you, we would, that's where we would perform. Or, and, and that's where we would set up camp. And hours and hours and hours of music would pass. And sometimes days, you know, uh, of just playing music, singing music, socializing, and learning these songs and sharing the canon. So I probably knew a couple hundred songs by the time I was 12 years old, you know, with just the roots uh, now, Andrew, you come at this music from a completely different direction. You were classically trained. Mm-hmm. I think you went to the conservatory at Northwestern. Yeah, I mean, I grew up on the North Shore of Chicago and did the Suzuki thing from early, early age, which is sort of a prefab oral tradition, <laughs> if you think about it. Uh, it's, it's a method, you know, by this uh, Japanese doctor to teach children at a young age to learn music the way they learn, as they're learning language. So you're learning, you know, Mozart, Bach, but also Go Talent, Rhodey, and, you know, folk songs. And so I didn't learn to read music until uh, high school, and it was a bit trial by fire. And by that time, my ear was so big, I could learn faster by ear. And I, yeah, I was, I went through conservatory. That was, you know, I was always kind of bucking against the tradition of, and it was it was social, but it wasn't until I started going to like Irish music sessions on Sundays when I was in college and drinking a Guinness and everyone sharing tunes where you know someone would start a tune and by the time the you know, third or fourth time it goes around, you've tried to figure out the the nooks and crannies of that melody. So that was uh, you know remarkable, very much more. Uh, 
of a relaxed uh, social type of context like Jimbo's talking about compared to like during the weeks being in an orchestra. You know, what interested me listening though is your tone on the violin because it's one thing to learn the notes, but you have a you have a very different tone playing this kind of music than you often do in your own music. It has a more country kind of flavor. I, you know, remember when I was a kid seeing, you know, Yehudi Menuhin and Itzhak Perlman trying to do jazz. You know, it wasn't all that successful. <laughs> no offense to Yehudi Menuhin, he really didn't have the gypsy soul. No, no. What's it like to have the kind of classical chops you do and then say, okay, now I got to play this other kind of music. And maybe some of the things you relied on in classical music don't necessarily translate. Yeah. I mean, from an early age, I would like listen to something on the radio and I would try to play it because that was how the Suzuki thing worked. You know, it was like a one room schoolhouse, you know, just learn the repertoire by ear. But, uh, that age of like from 18 to 22, I was just ravenous for new kinds of music to learn. And it did, I did have to, playing with drummers did help me kind of break up the phrase and be my own drummer. And playing the Irish music, you have to play your own backbeat with the way you're bowing. Mm. And it's a feel thing. It's not like uh, Yehudi Minuan trying to play jazz. That's like a, a transcription of maybe a Grappelli solo or something that, that he might be playing. And it's just, you know, you tried, I tried to do that first. I got a book of, like, transcriptions of Stefan Grappelli solos, and I was trying to read it. And it, of course, doesn't make any sense musically, and it can't be really taught that way. It's just an intuitive feel thing. And it took a couple years to kind of unlearn some things or break down the way I bowed mostly because it's mostly in the right hand now i i think i play more like a, a tenor saxophone player than a violinist you know there's a lot less articulation i think what where a lot of classical players reveal their their stripes is 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 in artic they're over articulating everything and it's just painful to listen to sometimes we'll be right back with more from andrew bird and jimbo mathis after a quick break Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. 
on demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more from Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis. When I was listening through the album this week, I was trying to imagine if I were to say to people, you'd love this album if you liked... And I think in the first few minutes, it was like, if you like the Stanley Brothers or Willie Nelson or Stuff Smith or Sun House or Johnny Cash or Ricky Skaggs or Django Reinhardt or Clarence Ashley, the band, and it just went on and on and on from there. So it's not, I don't want to give people the idea that this is some antique style. It's basically kind of American music in a very broad sense. But did you have particular people in mind when you were doing this? Or did you have a particular sound in mind when you were recording this? There's definitely no conscious template that we set out to achieve, you know, or some recreation of anyone else. And my influences are so myriad. A lot of the people you just mentioned, of course, play into that. But, you know, the way I think about it, it's like the old Harry Smith, uh, you know, the Smithsonian collection, you know, of folk music, how it goes from everything from Cajun to... African-American music to songs that are practical to like build a, a railroad to, or, you know, those are more of the, the bedrock templates that I use, um, not necessarily copying an artist, no, never, but in the tradition, in the vein of a style of music, a region of music. It's not a reading of... Um, of any antique forms or that's just who, who we are as people. And that, that's true when you, you listen to the, even when we were working in the early jazz vein, it was still original songs and, and original ideas and some of which uh, wouldn't have made sense in that era. We, we weren't like, you know, we weren't going around wearing vintage clothes thinking, God, I wish it was 1932, you know, but, uh, what surprised me with the writing of this record is like, because we both usually work alone on our songs, and uh, we kind of tapped into a little bit of what clarity and efficiency of like songwriting teams, you know, where Jimbo would throw out something like Dig Up the Hatchet, you know, where he's talking, taking some like fam somewhat familiar expression, you know, he was, we have the expression bury the hatchet, and he's like, uh, let's dig it up. Like, let's have a real knockdown, drag out fight just because it maybe is an aphrodisiac or whatever. I don't know what he's thinking, but I take the, I take that idea and, and kind of run with it. And cause I see exactly what he's doing. If it was in my, one of my own songs, I, I would be, have this in, in, obtuse internal conversation. But when it's two people immediately externalizing their ideas and there's a kind of a nice clear bouncy conversation going on with the lyrics and that's it came together so quickly and gratifyingly compared to 
the internal torture that we go through to write our own songs sometimes, you know. You know, that might be my favorite song on the album. I think it's my favorite <laughs> lyrics on the album. Uh, I was going to ask you, did you get that from anywhere, Dig Up the Hatchet? Because now that I look at it, it's one of those, that seems so obvious. I write from titles, you know. I, I get the title first. And so if, if I have a good title that I think is somehow intriguing, it almost spells out what the song can be about. So I don't have to sit around and dig up some idea or emotion or something to create a song because I start from the title. My mind kind of likes to flip things over like that, and especially colloquialisms, regional dialect, things people say but don't think about it. You know, so it's like, yeah, why didn't somebody think of that? Well, I mean, that could be true of, of any great song, you know, but um, that one is particularly f cool in the, the language that it flips on its ear. But I had the title Dig Up the Hatchet laying around in the notebook for probably, I don't know, maybe 15 years. Really? But I, I have to ask you, do you remember thinking of the phrase? Yeah, of course I do. Do you remember where you were? Uh, I was in Clarksdale, Mississippi in my grandmother's driveway. <laughs> you, know, you know, it made me chuckle. So I knew, uh -huh. I knew there was something there. I just, and so as Andrew and I progressed in our writing, I realized, well, shit, I can just go back and just dig up some old song titles. And, and I may have a scrap of, of a napkin or something that had, I think that was the fewest lines of anything I sent him. But he, you know, uh, had two or three lines. You did have that, that bit of the bridge where it's... Um, the cell phone thing. Mentioned the pictures you, uh, you found on my phone, which I, I raised an eyebrow at at first because I thought that, uh, <laughs> that, seems, that seems almost too current. But um, I, I like it now. I, I think it's, we needed some of that. Well, that was the other line I wanted to ask you about because, you know, with songs, even with modern songs, people, you know, people like older technology. People want to write about trains and Cadillacs. I think actually Rick Rubin had this conversation with Jack White on our podcast because um, Jack White was trying to figure out how to put Tesla in a, in a song. And he's like, it just doesn't work. But somehow in that song, the, the, it's the line about those photos you found on my phone. It works. It may be the first example of like new technology in an old song. I thought it was so great. You know, it's just, I was just thinking, well, what are the things that cause the most conflict? Cell phones cause more problems with people, you know. It's like the biggest contributor to, you know, arguing and things like that. And yeah, so it seems like the most obvious thing that somebody would, would bring up when you're digging up the hatchet, you know. And yeah. I, I thought Bird might just take the line out, but I, I mean, I didn't have but a couple of lines. I thought about it for a minute. Um, <laughs> I don't know, that kind of stuff, like... Uh... You know, before you had the lone gun songwriter, singer-songwriter, the Dylans, the Joni Mitchells, there were songwriting teams. And there's a certain uh, division of labor and, and the sort of conversation that, that is kind of appealing. Yeah, you can make a simpler song that way, actually. You can boil it down to the, to the, to the bone because uh, you're not stepping on each other's toes, you know. It's a clean line. You cover a lot of, you know, psychological territory. The lyrics start in L.A., which is, is that where you did the writing? That's where I was located, and Jimbo was in North Mississippi. But he, he started writing that song in L.A. based on his observations as someone not from there, seeing just how shocking 
the homelessness was in such a uh, prosperous tourist destination uh, spot as such as downtown Hollywood. And then uh, he pretty much had that song fully written uh, and recorded before, but I heard that line, look down and see the stars, look up and see the gold. And I thought that is like, that's, that line is gold. That's like your John Prine, like it contains multitudes in a few words. So I grabbed onto that. And that was, yeah, that kind of sets the, the stage for the whole record in the sense that here's Jimbo, you know, coming from his environment as a songwriter and observer and and this is what he sees. And then I wrote a verse that says what I see, which is as someone who lives in basically in this neighborhood and drives my kid to school through it, you know, every day, the people that live there that are are seeing it and trying to keep their humanity and when they see such inhumanity, you know, and not be numb to it. And so that was the the flip side that I was trying to offer to the song. It was a great flip side, you know, just don't, you know, if you look away and you close the blinds, then even though you can't maybe change what you see, uh, but if you look away and ignore it, then you are doing a disservice to your fellow man, you know. And if you look away, you won't see an avenue of, of help. You know, you won't see an avenue to, when it opens up to you or it appears to you, to actually make a difference. So it is a beautiful verse there that he wrote. We'll be back with more from Jimbo Mathis and Andrew Bird after a quick break. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now, Mark says, we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at NewStockTrend.com right now. Again, the link to watch is NewStockTrend.com. That's NewStockTrend.com. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with Andrew Bird and Jimbo Mathis. A lot of the lyrics I found very direct, very vulnerable. Certainly, Andrew, maybe more direct and vulnerable than you're used to writing. Was that also a product of working with someone else? Yeah, I think, like I was saying, like in my own internal conversations that become my songs, it can often be a long, drawn-out process. The ones I write fastest are the most direct, but the ones that take years to write are very layered and psychologically complex. And working with Jimbo was, was, kept things more closer to the surface, I guess you could say. I want to ask you a little bit about a couple of the songs. Sweet Oblivion, how did that come about? There's a couple songs that were all, all Jimbo or all me, and like "Beat Still My Heart" was all Jimbo, and and "Sweet Oblivion" was something I had already written before that I just thought made sense for the two of us to play. I tried to make it for my finest work yet, and it uh, didn't come out quite right. I think the thing, the the good thing about that one was I was able to put that uh, North Mississippi hill country guitar yeah. in there. I mean, that was a, a real, you know, something that really worked with that. Yeah. Jimbo's touch on the guitar is, is allows very simple things to be remarkable uh, as opposed to just kind of simple or boring, you know? Can you tell me a bit what you meant by that, by that guitar style? Uh, it's just one great thing about the, the Deep South, uh, still to this day, there's regions of, of styles of music that have been, haven't been erased or, or, or ironed out, as Andrew said earlier. So there's a little pocket of, of African-American blues music that's based in North Missis- northeast Mississippi in the hill country up there, they call it. And it's, a, it's usually would be, they didn't have a lot of instruments, so it would be a, a, a solo guitar piece. Uh, but it's very rhythmic, and it's mostly on the bass notes. There's not a lot of treble in, in really in any of my guitar playing, but it's a rhythmic drive of, of a way to approach a guitar. And it comes from like the old fife and drum tradition um, before they even had guitars. I mean, we didn't have guitars down here till after the Spanish-American War, you know, when the veterans brought them back as souvenirs, you know, the black soldiers. And that's a style they developed up here. They call it the hill country style. Just like kind of drone, droning, groovy, interlocking, not, not so much soloistic and just, just kind of interlocking patterns and grooves a little bit like north african very much so it's very much from the like west coast of africa so we're Mm -hmm. talking mali senegal you know but that's the the african-americans that were settled here as slaves that's where they were from by and large and so they translated the memories that they had uh, and then the banjo playing which was before the guitar, they translated that into a dance social music 
but it fit perfectly with um, Sweet Oblivion, the style. So I'm basically just doing like a, what some gentleman up here would have done, like Junior Kimbrough or R.L. Burnside or Mississippi Fred McDowell or somebody. I'm accompanying him in, in that style. It worked really good. It started with a, a loop I made on the violin, like pizzicato loop a couple of years ago that was just kind of odd, an odd phrase. And and I tried to make it work with the band and it just didn't, one of those things that didn't, didn't click. It got too um, normalized every time I tried to bring other people into it until I brought it to you, of course. No, no chance of it getting normalized with you, Jim. It's not going to be normal now. <laughs> so how did you record this album? Did you record it in a special way because you wanted so much space around the instruments and around the voices? We had two, you know, RCA ribbon microphones, uh, the 44. We've always used those. And also because uh, the violin is, can be a bit strident, you know. See, so the ribbon, old ribbon mics kind of take the edge off a little bit. And the tape is pretty key. That we're no strangers to doing things that way. We didn't really have time for overdubs or to overcomplicate things. I'm a fan of realism in recording, you know. I don't, I, I can see right through productions, you know, uh, the conceit of certain choices being made in producing a record. The biggest choices you make are like, what instrument is within arm's reach? And, you know, that, that there's that initial choice, but not. I don't like the post-production choices. I can hear them. They're so transparent, you know. And to keep things in the realm of performance, you know, is important. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit about uh, Stonewall 1863? You mentioned performance, and it's a very different kind of performance on this album. Yeah. I was watching the Ken Burns documentary on the Civil War. That's something I'm sort of haunted by and uh, return to all the time just because of where I live and the battlefields and the history that's here. It was just a line that was Stonewall Jackson, the general. It was his dying words. Let us now cross over the river and rest neath the shade of the trees. You know, and I heard the narrator say that on the documentary. So what is such a beautiful way to go, no matter, you know, when he's shot and shattered and his body's tattered and torn, they're all blown apart. That one just really went, I've really never sung that song before. It was just one of those moments, I don't really want to sing that song too much. You know, it's like, it's almost too painful for me just back in my chromosomes somehow. Um, well, I'm, I'm also basing it on like, they call it in church, the primitive churches when you're lining the songs out. So the preacher will say the word, the, the phrase that's about to be sung by the congregation. He says the next line that he wants them to sing in real time. And so I incorporated some of that um, old hymnal shape note uh, singing uh, in there where I say the line and then you sing the line. And Viola had the idea to just take all the music away and just hum, you know. And in a, in a way, that's one of the m most important parts of the album, just our two voices just not even saying words, just syllables or just a hum under your voice. Yeah. I mean, I was. It's funny you mentioned the Ken Burns thing because you wouldn't. Th you'd think uh, your inspiration is coming from, uh, you know, the soil down there, but not a PBS documentary. But nonetheless, it's like an incredible document that film, and it was huge for me too because I, 
I learned that there was like a kind of like a hit folk song that came out of that documentary. A Shokin Farewell. Yeah, which was written by Jay Unger, like a guy in, in upstate New York. Um, and I became obsessed with it. He's a fiddle player, right? Yeah, he's a fiddle player. He and his wife, Molly Mason. And they were on uh, Prairie Home Companions a lot in the, when was that? 90s, which I listened to religiously at the time. And uh, that song, you know, I owe them royalties because I, I played that for every wedding, every funeral, everywhere. And people just, I, I, I always felt something when I played it. It was just strange that like, this modern folk tune was so impactful and also paid my rent for the first, you know, when I was in college. You know, <laughs> That and the Pachelbel's Canon pretty much uh, kept you in soup. That when, when someone would uh, come to talk to me about doing their wedding, they'd ask for a Taco Bell cannon. And I would say, how about, um, how about not <laughs> Taco Bell cannon? Let's do a show and farewell instead. You'll love it. Uh, I, I do want to ask you about, in an album that has many songs about uh, people on the other side, meaning death, suddenly you're just on the other side of a red, red velvet rope, but it seemed, it seemed as impenetrable somehow. But Beat Still My Heart, which I just thought was just a lovely song. It had a very different sound to me. I'm not sure what style of song that is exactly. I was watching a friend of mine uh, who's about my age. I'm 53. I think we're about the same age. And um, he's a great musician, and he has been his entire life. He's very well known. I, I won't say his name, but he has pretty severe mental illness and psychosis. And I was watching him. I hadn't seen him perform in a long time, and he was on stage at a little bar down in the Delta. And he was actually just really having a really hard time on stage. He almost didn't know where he was and he didn't know what he was supposed to be doing type of moment in front of people. And that's what I wrote for him. Yeah, but that that theme of uh, the other side, you brought up something I didn't even think about that it's not just um, someone being on the other side of the velvet rope, but it, in Three White Horses, we're talking about the other side. Or the, I've been obsessed with the line over the years and it pops up on almost every record of the fatal shore and the crossing the river to between, the, like the threshold between life and death or any kind of threshold has been always like a constant undercurrent in my writing. And you only think about these things in retrospect when you have to talk about them when the record comes out, but... Yeah, it's interesting how much that comes up. Can you tell me, Jimbo, you had trouble with that song before. What was it about this collaboration that made it possible for you to do that song? I think just Andrew's voice, you know, just he's got such a, we have such different voices, you know. They blend together very well when we're singing harmonies. Just the tone of his voice, you know, versus mine. Maybe he just had a fresh approach to it. I mean, the the singing Jimbo's songs like... uh... Burn the Honky Tonk, in particular, is one of my favorites to hear on the album because it brings something out in my voice that I don't often write songs myself that tap that tone in my voice and that, that sort of Marty Robbins big crooner thing. And I guess Beat Still has that too, just kind of like a, a big romantic approach. Most of my songs are like every syllable is accounted for and the melody is already worked out, so I'm just kind of... You know, it's a different process and um, kind of the same feeling you get when you do 
a cover of a song you like, you know, you, you find you can sing a different way, you know, but I didn't, I didn't quite know I had that in me as that what came out in, on, uh, burn the honky tonk, but it's such a, so satisfying. Every time I do that song, I just like feel the resonance in my chest and in a way that doesn't happen on my own songs. Well, I guess that's what a great collaboration is supposed to do. So thank you so much for talking about this. I think it's a terrific album. I hope everybody hears it. When COVID is over, is it something you're going to tour with or you, do you have plans for it? Yeah, but plans? No, we're just, it's hard to have any plans. Um, the, the only thing I'm hoping is that they might try to pull off Newport Folk Fest this summer because it's kind of a, it's a fairly contained kind of festival. It seems like if anyone could maybe pull it off, it would be them. Okay. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. We appreciate y'all. All Thank right. you. Take care. See you, Andrew. Yeah, see you, Jimbo. Bye, buddy. Thanks to Andrew Bird and Jimbo for hanging out with Bruce and talking about the inspiration behind their new album, These 13. To hear a playlist of our favorite songs from Jimbo and Andrew's careers, head to brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find extended cuts of new and old episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia Lavelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. 
You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.